Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week, as always, are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. This week we will be discussing Tertullian's On the Flesh of Christ. This particular treatise is very famous for its emphasis on the absolute humanity of Jesus Christ, which is a unique emphasis in the early Christian theology about Jesus, which we call Christology, uh, insofar as Tertullian is much more earthbound, if you like, which will become representative of Latin theology versus the Far Eastern theology as in Alexandria with Clement, who looks much more in the spiritual side and the divinity of Christ. Now, that is not to say that either one of them would deny either the humanity or the divinity of Christ. It is a difference of emphasis, which we will discuss within the podcast. Next week, we will be back with Tertullian's Prescription Against the Heretics, and then we will be moving on to our next Latin theologian, Minutius Felix, before finally delving in to the source of much theology to come, Origen. Thanks for listening. Please check out our Facebook page uh, at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Yeah. So the first thing that I wanted to read just to get a sense of the like for Tertullian, the background of a lot of this, um, he quotes first Corinthians um, frequently and has this as a background. First uh, Corinthians one twenty one. for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. God decided through the foolishness of our preaching to save those who believe. Um, Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Um, for God's foolishness is wiser than human's wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And basically I read that because for one, Tertullian cites it in uh, this first text that we're going to look at on the flesh of Christ. But the, you know, where, where when we were reading Clement, Clement wanted to try to pull the philosophic tradition into his ideas of Christianity. He drew heavily on it um, to the point where um, it gets so spiritualized, it gets so um, sort of distant from the flesh um, that you might, you know, and he calls himself a Gnostic. And so he looks kind of like um you know, to some like like some of these Gnostics who believe that Jesus wasn't actually flesh. Um, what we have in Tertullian is a rejection of Greek philosophy, basically based on this text by Paul. So when Paul's talking about wisdom, um, it seems that he might have in mind, you know, Sophia, the Greek word for wisdom, where we get our word for philosophy. Um, and so he's sort of saying, look, um, Christianity is something totally different from philosophy um, and it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament in even a way that the Jews found it confusing. Um, and this is really important for, for Tertullian, um, p- partly because he's trying to reject Gnosticism, uh, the false Gnosticism, the Gnosticism that we talked about with Irenaeus. 
Um, so um, the the sort of to me the controlling idea of on the flesh of Christ is he just continually and repeatedly asserts um, how important the flesh um, is, and that's very characteristic of Latin theology. And Tertullian is our first theologian writing in Latin, um, and he is sort of you know he's at the we're talking the late third century, and this is really important to him. So I guess what what did you guys notice about how he was sort of different from Clement and his emphasis on on the flesh? Well, I didn't ever thought of it as a difference per se. I mean, in terms of different views, I, Clement never struck me as being against this notion of Christ in the flesh. So I don't I don't know that difference is the right term I would use. Um, I, I thought of them as having obviously different emphases, especially because Clement, as we've already talked about, was trying to save the notion of, uh, or save the word Gnostic for Christian use, where Tertullian is very clearly preaching against the Gnostics. Although, does he rail against the term? He does not actually use the term. He always mentions okay. Valentinus and Marcion by name, but never actually calls them Gnostics. Yeah, 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 I guess, okay. So he just referred, so actually, that's actually even consistent with Clement, because Clement referred to the false Gnostics by name, not wanting to give them the credit of being called Gnostic. So I don't know. I mean, I never had the sense that that Clement was anti-matter or anti-flesh, but I would say it's clear that Tertullian is putting this huge emphasis on it, which for me is interesting because I feel as though, at least in the modern era, especially since um, since the 1800s or since the mid-1800s, uh, with the advent of a lot of the kind of pseudo Christian groups out there, like Jehovah's Witnesses and like the LDS Church and so forth, you you have this fight in Christianity to preserve the notion of Jesus as Godhood. I feel like that's kind of our principal concern is to preserve His Godhood, both against these peripheral groups that have popped up, like what I just mentioned, also against kind of the secular uh, the secular perspective of Jesus, where they really, really, really want to humanize him. They want to make him a man. And, and if he's just a man, then the world feels super comfortable with him. And I feel like Christians are fighting really hard uh, against those different groups to try to preserve the godhood of Jesus, where it seems that Tertullian is in a world where the godhood of Christ is accepted as fact. And the question is, is he a man? Is he really, truly a man? And that's what he seems to be defending is the manhood of Christ, that Jesus is a man. He's not kind of a man. He's not like a man. He's literally a man. He's he's made of human flesh. He actually goes into detail and he talks about the veins and the the blood, I mean, that everything that makes up a human is in Jesus physically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It was an accent on, yeah, the the biggest difference was Clement was more thinking of him and his spirit and thinking of him as the Logos and really concerned with tying him to uh, the Greek philosophers, probably because he was a big fan. I'd imagine. And so he had a bit of a bias there, whereas Tertullian, just not a big fan. And so is it, yeah, hinging on a different uh, theological bent. 
But it's also, yeah, it's like you said, Tom, our culture is a lot different. We, we always are focusing on the deity because that's like the, you know, the magic strangeness to Jesus that people don't want to accept. And they, they think that they're, you know, basically pulling the curtain off the wizard. Um, so, you know, they're, they're exposing what's really going on behind the scenes by just going, look, now nah, just the humans, probably what happened. This is how people kind of got to thinking that he was God, but he wasn't really God. And yeah, they either want to do it to be more comfortable with him or they want to do it to literally Christ's own shame and to go, look, this dude was a lunatic, actually, a raving lunatic. Whereas, yeah, they just didn't have that issue because they had people like Jupiter, as Tertullian mentions, becoming a bull. And Jupiter coming down, you know, they had other gods coming down as things all the time. So it wasn't, it uh, wasn't the same sort of cultural debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although the uniqueness of Christ as an infant even is really important, uh, which is, is fairly unique um, for the, the uh, you know, contra the myth- mythological tropes, the, the, what, what often is taught in the mythologies. Um, and I like what he says about it. Uh, he says um, the, the Gnostics, basically, Marcy and Valentinus, they repudiate the incarnation and center it as unworthy of God. Um, and they talk about the, uh, the, the elements of the womb, the filthy concretion of fluid and blood. Um, and they say, uh, and then he says, now they, uh, they invade, they are against the shame itself of a woman in labor, labor, which however ought rather to be honored in consideration of that peril or to be held sacred in respect of the nature. Um, so, uh, Tertullian is, you know, against Marcion, against Valentinus, these, these false teachers, uh, these heretics, as they will, you know, are called, um, who want to get rid of the, of the birth of God um, in Jesus Christ. Tertullian says, no, this is this just to be honored. Birth is to be honored. The woman, uh, Mary, is to be honored. And Jesus, um, rather, as, as well, um, you know, Danes, God deigns to be part of this human reality. And so I def, I think it's, I really like what Tertullian does. And, and to the point earlier, I was setting them up as contrasts um, and I called it different. And I, Tom's point is well taken. Um, but I wanted, the reason I did it like that was because I wanted to highlight, you know, how uh, how theology is done differently in different areas, the, the emphases that are laid. Um, partly sort of a, maybe a pendulum swing, if you like. Um, and, and so anyway, but yeah, I mean, I, I point taken, it may not be direct difference or contrast or in antagonism. Uh, but at the very least it's, it's a, an emphasis that you don't see, um, in the Alexandrian strain of theology. Yeah, no. And I think that that's a very important point for our, listeners is that theology is not static theology is very geographical in a sense i mean especially back then because you didn't have the internet back then obviously you didn't have means of mass communication so debates were very localized to a certain degree i mean you could transcend a local area because of course the roman empire was in a sense a unity and you had these roads that stretched throughout the empire and you had a good communication system a good mail system and so forth. Um, but at the same time, 
there's still the, these debates took on a peculiar color in their area or in their geographic region. And so I think it's, I agree completely. And it is important for our listeners to make a distinction between the Alexandrian school of thought and the Western school of thought. It's also important to realize too, that those differences are largely shaped by ethnic and linguistic differences as well. And that are cultural. I mean, again, people don't, I think, understand just how important the cultural differences uh, in Christianity, like we, we tend to think of our Christianity through the lens of our culture. This still holds true today. We tend to think that Christianity is just whatever our culture, I guess, defines it as, so to speak. I, I think maybe I could illustrate it this way. Um, imperial missionaries in the imperial and colonial eras who went to China and who went to India, they would not only in their minds be charged with the tasks of making converts. They wouldn't just be trying to preach the gospel to Chinese and Indian people. They would actually intend to bring their culture with them and try to make the Chinese British or the Indians British. They would want the Chinese to cut their cues, which are their, their, their long top knots. Uh, the hair, that the, the way that they would style their hair, they would want them to cut that and to grow their hair like a good, proper Englishman. And they would want to wear suits and like English did, you know? And, and so it wasn't just a product. It wasn't just that they were going about trying to preach the gospel. They were going about trying to make people into a certain culture because that's what they thought Christianity was. And I see that here in Boise, Idaho, as I interact with um, different churches from that basically are transplants from people moving over here, like the Romanian churches or the Ukrainian churches or, you know, these various communities that I find where people will define their Christianity in the context of their culture. And we'll often, I'll find, in the course of our discourse, we will try to tell each other that they that we need to observe each other's cultural, uh, you know, practices. And so it's important to understand that Christianity grows up within a culture. And because of that, it takes on kind of a different, a different look to a certain degree. And not the least of which is language. Like, you know, I mean, so here again, it's important to remember Tertullian writing in Latin and the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, and so uh, we're going to begin to see, uh, well, right now there's not the Vulgate, which is the standard Latin Bible. That won't be written for another 150 years, uh, but there, there, there are translations um, of the Greek into the Latin um, and Tertullian uh, may have actually known Greek as well. There's some debate about that. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, the, the Latin culture, using the Latin language, Latin, like Roman law influences some of these things. And, and we'll see influences of that very Latin um, strain uh, of theology. One thing that uh, came to me as Tom was talking about this idea of culture, um, you know, sometimes like, um, you know, when I was a missionary, like I did some sort of missionary work in Romania and we would bring our worship songs um, to Romania and they wanted to use American English worship songs. And I thought that was cool because that's what I liked. Um, <laughs> but, you know, maybe it would be better for them to write songs in their own language um, or, you know, that reflect their own culture. Um, and so there is this, there is this uh, difference, but the to me the driving question is then what is the same you know what is it that makes us the same um from romania to you know ancient rome to 
you know, America uh, in Missouri in the 21st century. Yeah. Well, and would that go under, hopefully, maybe what you would call the rule of faith? <laughs> you would call I, the rule of faith? <laughs> I, I think so, yeah. There'll be some debate about that. But, you know, it's it, it might be the rule of faith. But, I mean, outside of even using that, that I think that's a question that Tertullian struggles with that all these uh, early theologians are struggling with. What is it that, that we have that's different from what the Gnostics, the heretics, Valentinus, what do these guys say? And how do we sort of, even in the midst of our differences, how do we continue to have one core um, that's really true to, to that, that makes Christianity what it is? And so that way, I mean, you know, the, the, the hope being in the 21st century, if I go to Africa, if I go to Nigeria and the, the Christianity looks really different, I might be, you know, shocked by the clothes or the sounds or something, but I can say, no, they still have that same thing that makes them Christian. So I can sort of allow all of this, or I mean, I can understand and be perfectly comfortable with the fact that Christianity looks different in Nigeria, but there is, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, the term Christian is vacuous or void. Um, and it's just, you know, a label that we use, but there's nothing essential about Christianity. Yeah, just to remind our listeners about the rule of faith, we had a couple of episodes about that, one on Irenaeus and then an episode on the Apostles' Creed. It's more or less just a statement of these of basic beliefs that basically are roughly correspond to the Apostles' Creed, a statement about the coming of Christ, the birth of Christ in the flesh, living amongst us, dying, resurrecting again, and then ascending into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. Um, it's It's really kind of a, a very bare bones kind of statement about what Christians believe uh, to kind of put in a modern parlance. Uh, when Christians today talk about the raise the question of what is essential Christianity or um, what is, what is essential to being saved is how might somebody might describe it. That is kind of at the core of the question. And it's funny because, that is actually something that a lot of Christians debate and disagree on. And um, I mean, we, we can certainly hit on a few of these things. Obviously the resurrected Jesus Christ, literally physically resurrected from the dead who sits at the right hand of the father. I mean, I think that that is clearly one of those things and he's going to return to judge the living and the dead. Um, there are certainly other issues. Um, certainly ones that I would think of as essential uh, that, Trevor and Chad would think of as essential, but they're also ones that are debatable that people kind of argue about. And that's a part of the discussion of theology really. Um, but that's what, that's kind of what we're asking about. What is the thing that unifies us? What draws us together? One thing I think that's interesting is aside from that little business of Tertullian being excommunicated eventually because he's a Mon- Montanist, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, the people who he would have ran in circles with prior to that, they would have all looked at Clement as being a part of their tradition. They would have, they would have recognized Clement as being with them, and he would have too. And and I think vice versa. Apart from the, um, apart from the the fact that he will fall into that Montanist sect. Yeah. Well. Um. And so we're reading on the flesh of Christ in chapter two, um, a little ways down. He says. Um, he's talking to Marcion, 
um, who is a Gnostic who tries to get rid of the Old Testament, and, and he's sort of a docetist. He tries to say that Jesus only seemed uh, to be human. Um, and Tertullian says, For indeed you, uh, Marcion, are already dead, and you who think like Marcion, since you are no Christian, because you do not believe that which by being believed makes people Christian. All right. <laughs> So here we go. What is it? Nay, you are the more dead, the more you are not a Christian. And he's falling away by rejecting what you formerly believed. He actually doesn't say it in that section, but just above, he mentioned, He actually says it. I suppose you have had, O Marcion, the hardihood, um, the boldness of blotting out the original records of the history of Christ, that his flesh may lose the proofs of its reality. Um, and so basically, uh, Tertullian says, the thing that makes us Christian is the flesh of Christ. That if you don't get that right, Christ, the Messiah of God, that's what Christ means in Greek, um, was also a man um, and took on flesh. And that seems to be, I mean, that's the thrust of this whole treatise uh, is that that's the one thing you guys have all got wrong. And that's the most important thing about being a Christian. Well, and that just shows how much the question of who we're debating defines our theology. That's what people don't understand. The, the question is always, who am I arguing against? When Martin Luther comes out and says we're saved by grace through faith alone, he's arguing against the Roman Catholic position of that time. That is a, an assertion which didn't come up a lot in anything we've read so far because that really isn't a debate at the time. And so it's kind of funny because you're absolutely right. Tertullian essentially says, what makes you a Christian? Believing that Jesus is a man. But if you were to tell Christians that today, they would be like, what? Everybody believes Jesus was a man. The question isn't that, it's something else. Was he God? So it has to do with who am I arguing against? Yeah. And it's funny because... I made that comment a little bit ago about how culturally we're arguing against these peripheral groups that have, in some sense, diminished Jesus or taken Jesus down from his godhood. I, I mentioned the LDS Church. I mentioned Jehovah's Witnesses, um, the Unitarian, uh, uh, the Unitarians. Uh, but I also mentioned kind of more of a secular approach where people are trying to make Jesus out to be just a human. But let me He's add this. Homeboy. What's that? Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. <laughs> Let me add this. Um, is that in the church, we, I feel, have forgotten that Jesus was a man. I, I feel like we our default position is to think of him as God, which he is. I'm not denying that. So if anybody's listening, I definitely <laughs> believe that Jesus is God. But you have to understand, and we'll, we'll flesh this out a lot more as we continue through our readings. The orthodox position is that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man in every way like us, with one exception, that he never sinned. And so that means that he had the, the physical stuff that we have. And that's the point Tertullian's making, and that's who Tertullian's arguing against. And I feel like that, for me, honestly, when I really came to an understanding of this fact of Jesus as a human, I felt like that was a huge open awakening, so to speak, in my own spiritual life. To understand that Jesus really did 
in fact, feel the things that I, the kinds of things I've felt and struggled with the kinds of things I struggled with. Again, not giving in to the sin, but nonetheless facing the pains and the heartaches and the difficulties and the temptations that every human has faced. Um, thinking of him in those terms, um, it, it revolutionized the way I look at life. When I thought about the fact that Jesus was once a baby, a helpless baby who needed his parents to change his diaper, um, who was trained and educated by his parents. He had to learn how to speak. The God of the universe had to learn how to speak. Uh, he had to learn a craft. He had to go to school. He had to learn how to read. These are the things that, that we don't think about or talk about because it's not in the scriptural record, but almost certainly, not almost certainly, were true because he was a man. Um, who was tempted beyond just that period of time in the wilderness when he was tempted in the wilderness, who the scriptures tell us was tempted in every way like us. So ask yourself, what ways were you tempted or have you been tempted? He was tempted in the same kinds of ways. So. Yeah. And to speak to the discussion about how the, the theology shifts or how the debate shifts or how the, the wisdom of that age basically is what's being rejected and how that shifts. I did look up a little bit from a secondary source and I, I liked something one of them said, this is just on Tertullian.org. I don't actually <laughs> know the author of this particular thing. So I'm just, but he just had a, a cool thing to say about, uh, a pretty famous section, chapter five, where I'll quote Tertullian first. Tertullian says, the son of God was crucified. I am not ashamed because it is shameful. The son of God died. It is immediately credible because it is silly. He was buried and rose again. It is certain because it is impossible. And uh, yeah, okay. We're, so this is, this is about to get really interesting, right? Because we read that and we're like, whoa. And one of the interesting things this is just this dude's opinion. He basically says that. He goes, here's my opinion. And one of, the, one of the things he says is, the argument is whether or not it is real. So once again, framing this in what is his cultural argument. His is about whether Jesus actually was a body. We don't, we don't work with that as much anymore. But he putting it in that context, says the argument was whether or not it was real or whether Christ was really just a phantasm. This later view is justified by its author, Marcion, as being less impossible, dangerous, or shameful. The context is not about reason, then, but wisdom, meaning worldly wisdom or convention, not logic. And he was doing that, you know, this quote was to kind of justify something in that passage, which is, it's almost sounding like Tertullian saying, like, we should just embrace contradictions whenever we want. And he's, tr he's trying to defend it against that, but it also just reminded me in general about our conversation we're having right here, that the debate was shifted. And so the the context of what was reasonable to people then was completely different. You could walk up to them and tell them this God came down, became a bowl, and, you know, this God uh, had a golden shower, like golden coins on this woman, she became pregnant. And that sort of thing in that cultural context, that wasn't irrational. Yeah. That wasn't crazy to them. And so that, yeah, the context of the age changes. And so what, what he's trying to say is, sure, this is foolishness. This is shameful then. And because relative to the culture, it was foolishness to them. And it was really shameful that God became man to them. And he goes, so yeah, even, even more than so, because we're, we're told that this would happen in 
Corinthians, as you quoted. So yeah, I think I think that's the important thing to keep in mind when he says that. Because if you because if you actually take it and you apply it to things in our cultural context today, what we consider irrational or rational, I think sometimes you can get weird and often even completely wrong results. I don't think, for example, I hear people quote that verse and then apply it to this context of today, and they'll say things like, so that means, you know, contradictions are just fine. And, Wait, which verse? Uh, this this idea of, like, what, what he quoted at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, just that in general, like, he, you know, he will make the, the wisdom of the age. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. So the first Corinthians passage about, yeah. about wisdom being foolish. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think Tertullian's interacting with it in its appropriate context, but sometimes we will not, <laughs> and we will, and they'll say things like this to justify just basically. I can believe this for no good reason. In fact, in spite of having no good reason, or in fact, even negative reasons why I shouldn't believe it, I'll still believe it because X. You know, I look at it's the wisdom of the world, where I. You know, maybe this verse still has applications today for the wisdom of our age, for what, you know, we consider rational. Probably still does. I mean, but at the same time, it, I think it is important to read it within its context. And in that time, yeah, what was shameful was God being a human. That's nuts. Like, yeah. And similarly, uh, it wouldn't have been, it would, it would not only be like morally shameful, but then it also would have been just crazy. Like, that's not, no, no yeah. rational person thinks that. Yeah. So, hey Chad, who do you remember the name? Oh, Lennox, John Lennox. Do you, you guys know John Lennox? Yeah. Yeah. So I remember hearing a debate between John Lennox, who, for our listeners who don't know who he is, he's a he's an Oxford mathematician who is a Christian, and often will debate some of these uh, these well known atheist neo atheist parts guys who are part of the neo atheist movement, like Richard Dawkins. Anyway, I was listening to a debate between Lennox and Dawkins, and while they're having a conversation, Dawkins says to Lennox, well, he says, John, you don't believe that Jesus actually raised from the dead, of course. And Lennox goes, right. but I do. I do, Richard. <laughs> I believe that he actually raised from the dead. And, and Dawkins goes, well, I can't believe that. He goes, no rational man ever believed such a thing. And Lennox goes, there are many, many rational men who believe such things. And, and, and Dawkins says, I've had many conversations with Christians, and they just believe that the resurrection is metaphorical. And then Lennox goes, you're being disingenuous, John. You know we believe he really resurrected. And he goes, name one intelligent person who believes such a thing. He immediately references Francis Collins, who won the Nobel Prize for, for um, his discovery of the, or for mapping the human genome, who's one of the most well-known biologists of this era, who's also a Christian. So he mentions that and Dawkins goes, well, he doesn't believe that Jesus actually resurrected. He goes, oh, but he does. He does, Richard. <laughs> yeah, and his Irish accent. Yeah, and so my thing is, I believe Jesus actually resurrected. And I simply cannot understand how somebody cannot understand that. Does that make sense? Okay. In other words, there are people who, when they kind of, they just define rationality as there are certain things that are unbelievable and believing that somebody raised from the dead is one of them. They don't really necessarily feel a need to justify that or defend that. They just think that's unbelievable. And for me, and, and I think this is kind of hitting on the point Trevor was making, which is 
that depending on your culture or your subculture, how you were raised, what you, like what is believable and what is unbelievable changes. I believe Dawkins is being sincere when he thinks it's unbelievable to think that a human could raise from the dead. Mm-hmm. And he can't fathom. He just cannot understand how somebody could actually believe that and think that they're rational. And, of course, C.S. Lewis, in his book on miracles, makes the claim that there's no, I mean, it's not just him. There's a lot of people who have made an argument, something along these lines, that there's no real rational reason why we shouldn't believe such a thing is possible. Um, but all this to say, my, my whole point is not so much to talk about whether it is possible or isn't, but just to point out that depending on our background, that affects what we believe is rational and what we believe is irrational, what makes sense to us and what is scandalous to us. Um, and that is constantly shifting and constantly changing. When I was 19 years old, it was not a scandal amongst most Christians to believe that the world was, to believe in a young earth, that the world was 6,000 years old. Now it is a scandal. Now that's something that is largely unbelievable to, to Christians or to a lot of Christians. Anyway, I'm sure there's still, I mean, there are plenty who, who don't believe that, but it's shifted. What, what we believe is like what people believe is a possibility and what people believe is scandalous changes as the culture shifts and as the culture changes. Sorry, yeah. I'm talking about well, I mean, I can't, I mean, I underline that passage that Trevor quoted um, in my translation, it says, because it is absurd. Um, and as much as I'm rational, you know, sort of analytic philosophy influenced at times, um, I still like, uh, you know, sort of Christian existentialism um, and some of the, you know, like Dostoevsky will talk about the holy fools and all of his literature um, and the holy fool is one, you know, like Ivan is the, to me, was the great hero of the brothers Karamazov, the perfect enlightenment rationalist who had given up belief in God. And uh, Alyosha, his brother, his younger brother, the monk, is the holy fool in that story. And again, this is a trope that repeats for him. Um, but, you know, that like I'm, I'm sort of, you know, in that sort of existentialist way, like the fact that it's absurd is, you know, just uh, is sort of in a way what appeals to me about, or I don't know if it's what it appeals to me about. That's not what I should say. I'm okay with its absurdity. I will call it absurd. Um, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy uh, to, to believe in something that's just um, preposterous, you know, it makes, and, and sort of take that, that leap of faith. Um, that's of course repeated um, till it's cliche. Um yeah, and see the and the thing is, I think is now we've all just hit it a million times. But you know, you're saying what this is absurd or this is preposterous, and I think we're just realizing now that that word just shifts. It yeah. just shifts on who, who is who's saying it because what's absurd to who yeah. is different. Yeah, depending on the culture. So the I think in fact I think what I was really trying to hinge on earlier was when people use the verse to. Um, forego the use of reason for example this sure. is go. so this is why we shouldn't even use reason it's like whoa that's that's insane it's like that but that isn't the idea it's uh-huh. more about what you were talking about which you you brought up a really good example of a modern day way in which that corinthians verse still rings true it's a it's foolishness to the culture of our age you know uh, but it will it'll be our wisdom essentially that uh-huh. christ did rise from the dead 
And well, I know you were bringing that up, and I think yeah. that's really important. I want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, really quickly, I still I want to get back at Chad there on his comment about Christian existentialism. So for our audience, the Christian existentialist, and Chad, Chad said that, it basically says it is foolishness. It's crazy, the things we believe. It is crazy to believe somebody raised from the dead. It's irrational, and I embrace the irrational. And he yeah. referenced the Brothers Karamazov, which is a famous piece of literature by Dostoevsky, where, there's char- you know, where this character embraces the irrational. Um, but for me, <laughs> I, although I love Christian existentialism, I do. I love reading it. And I have no problem saying that I can embrace the irrational if need be. I don't think it's irrational. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't things that I embrace that I do think are irrational in that sense. So I think it does apply. But I, personally, my, so the classic accounting of causation is David Hume. The philosopher David Hume from the 1600s. He's the guy who classically is defined for us what it means for something to cause something else. And his answer, his explanation of causation, cause and effect is just this. It's just whenever one thing happens and the other thing happens, that's ca- when it happens every time without fail, that's causation. And he goes on to say that that, that there's no logical reason <laughs> for connecting those things. Mm-hmm. He, he actually says the sun rises every morning. There's constant conjunction between those two events, the morning coming and the sun rising and it's we know that there's cause and effect there because that's what's happened every single day of our lives it's never not happened but he goes on to say but it's not irrational to think that the sun might not rise one day in fact when i was in college we uh (laughs) the philosophy department that i studied with we celebrated david hume's birthday by going up onto the hill table rock and uh watching the sun come up just to make sure just to make sure, <laughs> just to make sure the sun came up. Uh, and rad. So the my point in this is, David Hume's accounting of why dead people stay dead is because that's just what always has happened. Yep. Right. And his he would further on go on to say, and there's no rational reason for thinking it shouldn't happen otherwise, other than it's just what has always happened. That's not so. It's not illogical in the strict sense. I think that yeah. sometimes those guys wake up. Well, now we're getting into the problem of induction, aren't we? But we are getting into the problem of induction. Induction, it's true. Which just so our audience knows, that's the kind of reasoning I was using there and that Hume was using. But for me, not irrational. I don't feel like I'm embracing the impossible. Yeah, so. and I guess that's what I was trying to say. And I think that's what that – I quoted then that dude's opinion. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what he was trying to bring about was just, look, this doesn't mean logic or reason – this is just, yeah, this is the wisdom of the age. Yeah. And, yeah, anyway. Well, I think, but though, you raised, so clearly this is pertinent to Tertullian, and clearly it's pertinent to the church today, which is this issue of when a question gets too hard or we don't have an answer, to always default with saying we don't have to have an answer because God destroys the wisdom of this world, mm-hmm. right, and that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of this world. Here's what I would liken it to. Um, I would liken it honestly to a criticism that we often bring against people of other faiths. Like for instance, maybe, uh, I, I don't know. I've heard this a lot in the context of Mormonism where uh, people will kind of press a Mormon on a doctrine and the Mormon will just kind of say, you know what, I'm just going to go ask my Bishop about that. And the Bishop will say, you know what, let's just not think about these things. So it, and now again, I don't mean to caricature anybody, but I've heard that's an ad that's, those are, anecdotal stories I've heard lots, lots of times. 
but I've seen it in the church a lot where Christians mm-hmm. will say, just stop asking those questions because we don't need, you know, the wisdom of this world is inferior to the wisdom right, of God. Right, yeah. And I just have to say, it seems to me that we should be able to ask these questions. It's like a, yeah, it's a catch all verse for just not thinking sometimes. Yes. And I think, I think it's just better to say, and maybe Tertullian even should have done this. Maybe sometimes it's like, Hey, maybe there's just some things we don't know, but I think we should still think about this critically. Here's my best guess. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a smart dude. Here's my best guess. And I, you know, I can use my reason to come up with um, a good answer, but it may not be the way it is. And like, oh. I don't know. And that's, I think, kind of the state of even Christian theology to this day. I think mm-hmm. a lot of our debates were are like that. Anyway. Well, uh, to turn a little bit and, and not really actually to change the conversation too much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of A History of Christian Theology. We'll be back again next week with another work from Tertullian before finally moving to Minutius Felix. Have a good week.